Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 290 of Milwaukee's Tailgate Brewers podcast, part of the MKE Tailgate Network. I'm James, joined once again uh, by Ryan and Paul, who uh, has power. We're we were anxiously awaiting to see if you had power this week. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's been a very very stormy uh, day here, and we've seen two different rainbows for two different um, like cloud bursts during the course of the day. Lost power overnight. Lost power several times. It's been it's been a fun one, um, to, especially with the rain. Kids and no power is not fun. Bad times. Oh, that yeah. does sound absolutely terrible. Yeah, stuck so. inside with nothing to do. Yeah. <laughs> Not great, but we made, we made it. We're done. Hooray. That's good. Ryan, how have you been? I've been at Summerfest all weekend. So I was there on Friday night and there on Saturday night. So uh, besides leaving a backpack in the shuttle that we took home and having to go back to the shuttle place and repick it back up once Ooh. we realized our mistake, um, it's pretty good. It's pretty good. I uh, everybody schooled me on the fact that I didn't know who, uh, and I'm forgetting who it even was. It was Nick Lowe and the, uh, uh, I'm forgetting what it was. Uh, I didn't realize who the opener for Elvis Costello was. It was his uh, his longtime producer, the guy who produced yeah. his first. Yeah. Okay. So Nick you... Lowe's great. He's cruel to be kind. Elvis Costello does a lot of covers of Nick Lowe stuff. Like, yeah, that's. Yeah, he's the cruel to be kind guy, and uh, I knew the bride when she used to rock and roll too apparently if you wrote that so he's like a songwriter in his own right but yeah so uh we i had no idea i i guess i don't know elvis costello that well so but it was one <laughs> this was definitely i needed to check him off the list of of acts i needed to see so check and uh and done so it's fun nice nice any other summer fest shows in your future oh yeah gonna be at a couple shows each of the next two weekends so We'll be there two days each of the weekends. I don't know which days are which, but yeah. Yeah, we were thinking of doing Avits, but we couldn't get up there to, for it, which is unfortunate. But yeah, is what it is. Yeah, that's what we saw on Friday night was the Avits. Yeah. So, yep, both read nice. the BMO. So nice little place to see a show. Mm-hmm. Nice. Yeah, I think I definitely like the idea of the three separate weekends better than the traditional just blow straight through. I know some traditionalists have some hard feelings about that, but just scheduling wise, it makes it nicer to me. I don't know. I'm torn because it's more convenient for me now for sure. Right. Right. (laughs) But when I was like 14, it was much more convenient to have it all the time during the week for two weeks. That was great. So I feel bad for the kids these days. Yeah, you know what kind of weirds me out about it is the fact that they chose to go Thursday through Saturday instead yeah, that's of an Friday, choice. Sunday. Yeah. yeah, I'm not sure exactly what that's about. But yeah, because I, I understand either way, if you're dealing with uh, either Thursday into Friday, so a work day that day, or you're dealing uh, Sunday into Monday, so a work day that way. Either way, a lot of people probably take the day off or, you know, whatever. And so I, I kind of don't see what the, the point is for that, but they must have had numbers that said this makes sense. We, <laughs> yep. We're going to get more people. But those those Sunday afternoons, like a lazy Sunday afternoon over at uh, at Summerfest, that's kind of lost now. Like, that's not really a thing the way that it kind of used to be. Yeah, I'm OK with that. Thursday's <laughs> Thursday's the new Friday. It's all good. <laughs> there you go. All right. Uh, plenty to talk about this week when it comes to the Brewers. Uh, another interesting week, I guess, is is the way that we'll put it for now. Uh, but first, a reminder, you can get question priority for any episode of this podcast. Go to patreon.com slash MKE tailgate. Two bucks a month 
gets you that question priority, both on this podcast and on reporting as eligible. Five bucks gets you that uh, little perk, plus the exclusive content, the minor league extra with Ryan and James Anderson from Roto-Wire, as well as reporting as eligible mini pods during the Packers season. All right. So uh, as I mentioned, up and down again, (laughs) is kind of becoming the theme for the Brewers. They were three and three this week, uh, this past week, I should say. They dropped two or three at home to the D-backs, which I guess no shame there. D-backs are actually really, really good. Still a frustrating series to watch, though. Um, But uh, then they went on the road and took two or three from the Guardians. So uh, they kind of even things out there. And I guess it's safe to say, like, we're kind of used to these ups and downs now, right? <laughs> like, before sweeping the Pirates, the they had lost, you know, of course, six in a row, uh, season-high losing streak, uh, including getting swept by the A's. But before that, they had won five of six. Now they're kind of on another one of these hot streaks. So, you know, kind of Katy Perry hot, and then they're cold all year long. Our first question of the week comes from Adam Post, kind of about that. Um, and he's asking here, what makes the Brewers this season so consistently inconsistent? <laughs> this season feels like it's all made up out of winning stretches and losing stretches, which I guess to some extent uh, every season is, Paul. But this kind of seems like on the extreme end. It's because they're like a 500 team. And so like the the way that 500 teams work isn't win one, lose one. It's you win three, you lose four, you win five, you lose four, you win like that's how this thing kind of goes and that's what they are like they're just fundamentally like just an average even steven team like they're they're like seinfeld on the episode where elaine keeps losing things and george keeps getting things like they're they're the middle one that's what they are and so that's exactly why this happens like even teams are inconsistent like that's how they're built consistent teams are either really good or really bad they win a lot or they lose you know a ton all the time this is what you're gonna get you're gonna get these little waves and these little um you know uh, whatever the opposite of waves are troughs and uh that's that's likely what you'll keep seeing from the brewers the whole season because that is what they are they are just an even steven mediocre team yeah i think that that pretty much sums that up i, I don't know it's it, it seems a little bit extreme this year and i'm not sure if it has something to do with like they got off on a hot run to start the season and i think a a big part of that a substantial part of that was they were really healthy and then the injuries started to really bombard them and they started to get racked by injury after injury after injury. And so I look at May and I see, you know, of these runs where they lost three in a row there, then they won three in a row and they lost like actually uh, they had a another six game losing streak uh, in the middle of May. <laughs> and then, you know, like a, a bunch of losses. I look at May as being kind of, you know, the the bounce back. And it was. It was the comeback to earth after the hot start of, of April. And, you know, they were kind of hurt. So I think that that kind of the, the timing of it, at least, suggests that there's some ups and downs having to do with the roster and what was going on. I mean, we know we lived through it, uh, how bad the roster got at one point by, you know, especially by like the NMA. So I think there is some of that in there, but this is probably a pretty mediocre team. I was reminded, though, I was thinking about this earlier today, that, you know, they were in 2018 and 2019, going into September, they were basically a 500 team, right? Both of those years. And then 
played really, really good baseball in September to cap out the season. And that was back in the days when Craig Council could do his Craig Timber thing and yes. uh, bullpen yeah. a lot and all of that. So there was some of that in there. Like he, they were taking advantage of the way the rules were back then to be able to do some of that. But also just like those teams got really hot at the end of the year. Like the players did get hot. There's there's no doubting that um, that they they did play really well down the stretch. And so I don't know. I, I think that it's it's funny because the difference between a a mediocre team and a great team, a mediocre team and a bad team is like can often be one really good or really bad month, right? Like you could if you sort of have the defining month of the season where you're really, really good or you're really, really bad. And they haven't had that yet. April was more up. May was more down, but you, June feels like it's been kind of more of an even sort of treading water month. And where it goes from here, I still think is quite up in the air. I, I don't know that we uh, can say with much certainty where and which direction this team is headed right now. There's good indicators and there's bad indicators. So I think that it's just kind of a we have to continue to wait and try to get more information before the trade deadline, before you can like start to make any sort of concrete decisions. But even then, I kind of feel like we're probably not going to have a real concrete answer to this team. Hell, we're probably going to get to October 3rd or whatever the last day of the season is and not really have a concrete answer about what this team was. I think we're likely going to still be, unless they get hot and go on a run on the playoffs. And then, of course, the team, all the bad will be forgotten and everybody will remember that they you know, were, were a great team. The way everybody basically forgets the first five months of 2018 and just remembers the fact that you know September and October were magical. So... You, I think a lot of it is still yet to be written, but like I said, there's indicators cutting both directions on this one. That's what a mediocre team is. It's when that happens. <laughs> like That's the definition of it. So that's what they are. They'll be 500. It, it'll be that. How close to 500 are they going to be at the end of the year? They're going to hit it on the head. And it's going to nail it. <laughs> well, let's see. That They're going to be... get the they're going to get the run differential up too. They're going to be like within five of being perfectly 500. That's what this, that's the destiny of this team is to be exactly, <laughs> yeah, exactly to be average. exactly Jerry Seinfeld. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's it. That, that, that's really it. Uh, like they even have like in the division, they have the other thing happening. Like the pirates lost like 10 in a row and their run differential went, went from like minus five to minus 44. And now they're the worst team in the division. And, and, you know, Cincinnati, like, just benefited from all of that and shot up the charts. So that's what's happening. They're just staying right there. All right. Uh, before we get to more questions, uh, let's grab a couple news items here. One of the pieces of information, Ryan, you're talking about that they might get soon that helps um, develop the storyline of the season, uh, as it were. Uh, Brandon Woodruff threw his first bullpen uh, recently, and it was considered a success. He came out of it smiling and happy. All good. Uh, and now he's on track to come back sometime in July. So I know the last couple of weeks we were having these updates. It was kind of iffy because he hadn't thrown yet. And that kept pushing the timeline back. But I, it looks like we're now back to sometime in July, maybe mid-July. So I guess, Ryan, how big of a deal is that to potentially uh, getting the team going forward, especially after, as they you know have to make some decisions a couple of weeks after that at the trade deadline? Yeah, it. It is potentially a very big deal, especially if he's pitching the way he was pitching before he got hurt, because he was absolutely lights out those first two starts of the year before, obviously, the injury hit him. So I think that 
yeah, it, it potentially is a a big deal for the season. It is going to be after the All-Star break for sure because he's still throwing bullpens, and then he's going to need at least a couple of rehab starts, I would imagine, two, three rehab starts. So they'll have to space those five days out. So we're probably looking at, at most, a start or two from him before the trade deadline. So let's say everything goes in the tank and you potentially want to trade him off. Well, you could feasibly have him showing scouts uh, and you know, uh, everybody on TV uh, what he has coming out of the the break but I still or coming out of his injury I should say but that still feels like it would be rushing it for a trade like uh turning around and dealing him right away if let's say the worst happens and everything goes to hell over the next five weeks or whatever that still seems like it would be a little bit quick so I don't know that you would potentially trade him but it could be a very big deal in terms of if the team starts to pick it up a little bit um giving them a little bit more confidence to add to the roster. I don't expect them to be buyers at the deadline in terms of like going out and making big win now moves, but to be more buyerish than sellerish, uh that could I think easily happen, couldn't it? Yeah, I'd say so. But um, you know, it, it's gonna just be a random hot streak time around there, I think, more than anything. But yeah, they they need Woodruff to have an accurate assessment of what they'll be. And that's not necessarily even the, him being good. Like, they, they obviously want him to be good, but they got to know what they got here. Like if he's going to you know, not be able to rejoin the starting rotation with any kind of confidence, it was going to take him a long time to pitch back into this. Like they got to know that before they actually hit the trade deadline because they have to, they have big investments to think about here. And, um, you know, they can be, I think, legit contenders with their averageness. If they add, a, you know, a four or five win pitcher, which he is, but if they're not getting that, then that's a different story altogether. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I guess turning our attention to other parts of the rotation, next Patreon question this week comes from Bob Peterson. Uh, sticking to that theme of being consistently inconsistent, uh, Bob's asking, why does Freddie Peralta continue to be consistently inconsistent? Every game he appears to appears to be sharp. Loses all command for one inning, then gets dialed in again. What's happening, Paul? Uh, he he doesn't have good command. He has he has okay command. And Freddie Peralta's always said okay command. And um, I think some some pitchers just kind of have naturally good command where they have good muscle muscle memory, and it just kind of is there for them as long as everything's working and there's no injuries. Freddie's not that. He's got to reset it every once in a while. He's got to go back inside of his brain and get things working again. And <laughs> that's just how he is. Like his stuff's really, really good, but he loses it once in a while. And he, I, to his credit, he's, I think, gotten quite a bit better at getting himself untracked when he does lose it. But it's not instantaneous. He's got to get his feel back. That's just the kind of pitcher he is. And that's how he's going to be probably for his entire career. <laughs> I was going to say, um, that's really been like what he's been like. I remember it was either his second or his third start. It was at Cincinnati against the Reds. His first start in Colorado was magical, right? Remember that? It was on Mother's Day and or maybe it was Father's Day. One or the other. It Mother's was, Day. It was, <laughs> a, Mother's it was Day, Mother's Day. It was, it was Mother's Day. Day yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So and it was like one of the first times that his parents had seen him pitch like so it was it was this huge as a professional I mean um so it was this huge big deal and then like right away I remember this game against Cincinnati where I want to say he loaded the bases gave up like three runs in the first inning and then like 
probably got like 12 straight outs or something and, you know, ended up with a five uh, inning start where he gave up the three runs and it looked like it was headed for complete disaster. And then he regained it. And like that was the perfect harbinger of Freddie's whole thing. Right. Like that was going to be his career where every game he has like this inning where you hope and pray that they can limit the damage and not make it quite so bad. And if you could do that, you'll probably get a pretty good start out of him. If not, you could you can potentially get away from it. Usually it doesn't get away terribly, but there was that game, the one that uh, Adamus got hit in the head. Like that game got away from everybody. So yeah, that's a little bit of a different circumstance. But, you know, when he has bad starts, it's generally like he gets kind of blown up in one big inning. And I was going to sit here and make the point that it's probably just that he's not quite as good anymore so that the highs aren't quite as high as they used to be and the lows get lower, right, in that uh, and all of that. And I was going to point to his velocity. So I pulled up Brooks baseball, and here it is. He's throwing harder than he did in the past this year. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, I think his velo's been pretty good this year. Yep, there's been no problem on the velocity side of things. Uh, he is throwing a sinker a little bit more now than he had. He had no sinkers the first three months of this year and uh, all of last year. And it they have him credited for sinkers uh, this month. So but in general, the velocity seems up. So I I don't know exactly what it is. The command is spotty and it comes and goes. And that's yeah. but that's Freddie, right? Like, that's al- <laughs> that's- and that's always been Freddie and his delivery. You watch him with that delivery and you're like, OK, that seems like a lot of moving parts, especially for a guy who's not exactly like big and gangly. You know, it's the kind of delivery you expect to see from like a big, tall guy. And he's not real big and tall. But that delivery is also how he manages to generate that kind of velocity. And, you know, because a guy with his frame generally doesn't. Uh, well, he might generate that that level of velocity, but then often doesn't sustain it. A lot of guys his size end up in the bullpen. You know, it's kind of the classic reliever build more so than a starter build. But he manages to do it. So, uh, yeah, we will uh, we'll see what it looks like going forward. But it's always sort of an adventure. You just brace yourself for is this going to be the bad inning and uh, hope that it's not. Uh, There was some debate. I don't know how closely you guys were watching on Saturday's game about how long uh, they he had his bad inning was the fourth inning in that game. And then was really good. It was one, two, three, fifth inning. And then they brought him back out at 90 pitches for the sixth inning. And he gave up two singles and then they yanked him. And then that was the definitive runs that uh, ended up coming in and scoring on the relievers that ended up, you know, putting them behind for good in the game. Um, It's a tough dance to do in that situation. I know that people were criticizing Craig Council for it. And. It's it's a tough thing to do because so often in that situation, Freddie's going to come right back in and he'll give you a a quick, you know, 10, 15 pitch inning and mow right through the lineup one more time and and be good after he's sort of refound it again like he had in that game. So I think that's a it's a tough call. Those are the kind of things that, you know, keep managers up at night be wondering, you know, because Council had to have thought about yanking him at that point and obviously decided to go with him for another inning and it didn't work out and it was, you know, where they lost the game. But that's just a tough situation to to try to to manage because you are trying to get as much as you can out of your starters. Like there's still that thing. You're trying to, to take it as far as you can reasonably before you uh, 
you yank them and to try to save as much wear and tear in your bullpen over the course of 162 is possible, right? Right. And I guess uh, speaking of one bad inning, let's uh, shift our attention to Corbin Burns because he had one bad inning on Sunday. Uh, obviously gave up an early home run, only a solo shot to uh, one of the Naylor brothers, but then was kind of cruising before things fell apart and he actually got dinked and dunked and before he got uh, pulled from the game, uh, lost the lead, you know, went from four to one to four to four, felt like another one of those games that were going to get away from the Brewers in the middle innings and they ultimately pulled it out. But uh, it's led to a lot of questions about, again, about the effectiveness of Corbin Burns. Uh, you know, we've talked about what the hell is actually going on with him and uh, where did things go wrong? So, uh, those feelings still kind of uh, pervasive around the Brewers, especially as we get closer to the trade deadline. And I know, Ryan, you were kind of prodding uh, Brewers Twitter a little bit about a prospective uh, Corbin Burns trade in July. But first, let's start with Mark Scarby's question here, uh, asking, I know Burns likes having Caratini catch him, but given this season's results, should we maybe give Contreras more of a shot? So uh, I believe... William Contreras started catching Corbin Burns earlier in the year. Uh, I think he caught probably one of the worst outings shortly after that. Caratini kind of became the personal catcher as much as the Brewers tape personal catchers for Burns. Uh, But Paul, you know, it obviously doesn't make a huge difference, I guess, especially when the issue is more like pitch execution and not game (laughs) calling, right? Yes, that's correct. The the catcher's not the problem for Corbin Burns. And if he's going to feel a little more comfortable with Caratini, you got to get Caratini some rest, catchers get rest and it's fine to rest them any way that makes people happy. Really? That's, that's, that's it. If platooning works, that's fine. If personal catching works also fine, not a big deal. And Caratini has been fine this year anyway. So that's fine. Yeah. The problem, the problem with Burns is just um, execution. It's not anything that the catcher is doing. It's not game calling. And, and um, he's just, frankly not been as good not missing as many bats at all not even close um and it's really just like a a combination of some regression to the mean losing his spots a little bit and he's a little hatery like he's always been a little hatery where if he is on he's the best pitcher in baseball which you know that's why he has a so young but if he's not completely on he can go to pieces pretty quickly ball leaves the yard he can get wild and walk people too, and that 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 happens with some regularity. So um, he's been not he's, he's been like an average pitcher this year so far for them. Um, but like it's there's no uh, catcher's just a minor thing. Corbin's got a lot of problems he needs to work out, and um, you know he's still like an asset, but he's not what you're paying. Well, he, he, you're not paying him that much. He is what you're get, actually paying him for, <laughs> but but he should be more than that. Um, Today, I also I saw some people doing the same arguments that they did with Freddie the other day about like leaving him in a little too long, but that's that's not true. Like if Corbin is going to help you the most, mm-hmm. he's got to be able to get through six. Like you got to let him do that. You can't start yanking him after five. Um, that's not what you're. That's he's not on the team to do that. He's on the team to be your ace, and you got to let him work through like get his stuff going early when he's when he's fresh. But you got to let him work when he's fatigued too, or he's not going to be good for you. So um that's that's kind of it with him he's got he has problems they they seem to be mechanical they might be mental when you cut your hair you think they're mental um but um he uh he is uh, you know 
catching thing is fine, but he needs to work on himself more than anything. Yeah, and just to put a finer point on what you were saying a second ago, uh, it's also that if uh, if the Brewers were to manage things that way and go back to that, because that's kind of what I heard was people talking about how, well, the Brewers used to do this. They would never let guys face a, a pitcher the third time through. Well, MLB basically put the kibosh on that and is trying to force teams to use their starters longer by limiting what uh, the rotation you can do in the bullpen is. You know, the, you're, you're not allowed to run the shuttle between your AAA club and the major league club quite the way that you used to. That has had to slow down because you're now only allowed to uh, bring guys up and send them down five times in the course of a season. And that has put a slowdown on that a little bit. They've also done some other tinkering, like, uh, you know, a lot of teams were carrying 14 pitchers at one point, uh, and you can't do that anymore. You're now limited to 13 pitchers. So teams have put the kibosh on, or the, the league has put the kibosh on this, and so it's not as easy to manage that way. Teams have to get a little bit more out of their starters. And frankly, you know, Corbin Burns is wanting to get paid like an ace. Like, he clearly thinks he should be paid like an ace and at one point he was right like legitimately was in 2021 into the the first half of 2022 he clearly was that but he's gonna have to show that he can continue to be that or be that thing again if he wants to get paid like that and right now frankly he's not all that close to it his strikeout rates have really plummeted and it really 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 plummeted like they're down just drastically like half of what they were in his Young season yeah he yep in 2020 and 2021 he was up at about 35 percent 36.5 and 35.6 last year it actually did drop off um to 30.5 percent and i wonder if we saw more of that in the second half I would, i'd have to go back and look at splits of that to see how it tracked by month but it certainly felt like he wasn't as effective in the second half. I mean, we know he wasn't. His numbers weren't as good in the second half of last year. Uh, got pointed out in the arbitration hearing, much to everybody's chagrin. That's why they missed the playoffs. Yep. Duh. Yep. Yeah. Um, but it's 23.5 this year. Yeah. I mean, he is down 12 percentage points, basically, from where he was at his peak. And that's going to affect anybody's dominance. Anybody who has that much of a fall off in terms of how many bats they're missing is going to see a decrease in effectiveness and exactly why that is happening. I couldn't tell you. He's not missing bats with the cutter. Like the main thing is he's not missing bats with the cutter. It, it he has a 24.5, uh, 24.9% whiff rate on the cutter, which he throws just way more than every other pitch that that seems to be the main problem with it. And some people have said they think it's partly a location issue on that, that the pitch isn't as well located as it used to be. I wonder if people have just sort of gotten less uh, eager to swing at it unless they know it's going to be in the strike zone and they're more willing to take it when it's on the edge and just like take their chances with it. And that's a that's a tough thing sometimes because it's not the cutter. His cutter isn't a breaking pitch. It's it's more of a fastball, but it it's it's in the that gray area between a, a fastball where the location is generally a little bit sharper and a breaking pitch, which usually the the location on those is a little bit more variable, right? Yeah. And his is sort of in between that. And if guys are just saying, "Hey, look, I'm not going to swing at that thing unless I'm sure it's in the strike zone." Um, it might be the batters are just approaching him a little bit differently in the scouting report on him and, and how they're handling him has changed too. It could be a lot of different things, but I wonder if he's actually throwing it just too much and there's just not enough 
um, diversity in his repertoire compared to what it used to be. In 2021, he threw slightly under 1,400 cut cutters over the course of the season. In 2022, he threw 1,800 cutters over the course of the season. Ooh. That's and if you just if you go to Savant and just look at his chart, it looks like he throws the cutter too much. Like it just it pops out there. Um, he's thrown 751 so far this year. We're about to hit the halfway point next Friday. So he'll probably be on pace for about 1600 when it's all said and done. Um, and with some shorter outings compared to last year. Um, and it's definitely impacted. Like his other pitches aren't missing bats as much either. Um, but he just throws it so much more. Like that's going to be the driving force behind whether he misses bats or not. And I suspect he needs to to bring a little bit more diversity into his his repertoire to actually keep guys off balance a little more. They're looking for that, and he's not missing at all when he throws it. He's got to fix that. Yeah, and guys do need to, even if it's what you're doing is working, you need to keep changing and and sort of mixing it up. That's what the, the really great pitchers do, is they're always looking for that next trick that they can use, even if things are going fine. And he's sort of in a position where things aren't really going fine for him anymore. He, he's below what I'm sure his standard is, where he would like to be. But I'm looking at, like, 2021, the range in cutter usage by month here, um, at its low point was 47. <laughs> at its high point, it's 55. Um, this year, it ranges between... 51 and 56 well 57 this month it's just about 57 this month so he's kind of in the same range but that doesn't mean that he that what paul said isn't true you might he might need to make changes sort of preemptively here even if what was once working is no longer working then it's time to change it even if you can't quite figure out why it's uh it's not working as effectively as it did so it it often just comes down to Pitchers need to evolve and keep their stuff moving. Uh, did you hear the story this week about how Wade Miley, whose grip did he see? It was Paul Skeens, right? Paul Skeens, yeah. <laughs> he was just watching the World's, College World Series on TV and it's like, I'll just throw that sinker now. And he did. It was wild. And like, so that's, that is weird. Okay, that's that's some weirdo stuff. And also why I love having him on the team, because I hope every <laughs> everybody that rubs off on everybody else like, oh, yeah, you're just going to go tinker with stuff and just like sure. and, and mess around with stuff like that. Like, that's every every team should have that guy who's just like, you know, like the mad scientist with with pitch grips and all that stuff. I think Brett Suter used to be that to a, a certain extent. Yeah, I think so. Um, but. Yeah, like, uh, but the ability to just like have it pop in and be an effective pitch for you, like two days later when you're you're uh, you're making a big league start, that's weirdo. That's not normal. That's that's not something you could just teach. That's like that's that's some strangeness right there. All right. Well, maybe Corbin Burns needs to do that to address this oddity that PJ Wessels pointed out. No. Uh, the. Uh, the uh, dreaded reverse platoon splits. So Corbin Burns, PJ Wessels notes, has quite the reverse platoon split this season, uh, allowing a line of 185, 272, 268 against left-handers, but 246, 301, 427 against right-handers. Last season was almost a reverse platoon split. How would you fix this imbalance? I doubt this is something the front office wants to see from pitchers, Paul. <laughs> Um, I don't know how to explain this one specifically, especially given the cut fastball thing. Like, I feel like that uh, maybe I'm maybe I'm wrong, but I feel like that's not a reverse platoon split driver most of the time. Um, 
but I I got I got nothing. It's annoying to see. It's just another brewer thing that drives me crazy. Um, but it probably does speak to his need to improve his repertoire and add some diversity to it. Uh, if you are not getting out same side pitching, it means same side pitching is seeing something way too well. And um, it shouldn't be too hard to figure it out. Um, I, I'm trying to frantically pull up StatCast pitch splits the whole time we've been talking and have failed to do so. So I'm, I'm not sure what's going on there. Yeah, I looked up because he mentioned last year that it was pretty close to this. Uh, it was. I mean, it was like 590 against uh, righties and yeah, like 610 6, against lefties yep. uh, in terms of OPS. So good either way. Like it was either number was good. Uh, so you don't really worry about that. But it is a little bit strange. And it is. The, Paul's right about this. This is something that is uh, it, something about your stuff. If you're not getting out same side hit airs. Uh, at a high rate it's some sort of deficiency of stuff because that's the the where uh hitters have the biggest disadvantage and where they're most susceptible to big breakers is against same side pitching and if you're not getting that which it feels like corbin burns should be getting a lot more of that then something something is funky here though there's a good chance there's at least a, a substantial amount of noise in this as well like this could be propped up by just like eyeballing it, this could be propped up by you know a few homers, basically, like a few a few dingers going out of the yard, and those can be kind of sweet, generous events. And so you don't want to read too much into like a guy giving up a dinger in any one sort of situation. So, but yeah, it, it there's something here where like his stuff should be better than this against right-handed yeah batters for sure. I guess on that note, I. Did manage to pull up some sort of pitch tracking quickly here. Um, so uh, just looking at his pitch breakdown, obviously he's not going to throw a change up to a right-handed batter. That just doesn't really work well. So he, against righties, throws sinkers and sliders a lot and almost never throws those to lefties. Uh, so according to, I don't know if this is updated through Sunday or not, but he'd only throw in nine sinkers to lefties all year and two sliders to lefties all year. So those seem to be his righty pitches and those account for four of the 12 home runs he he's given up this year. So mm, okay. seven are cutters too. So it's either the cutter or the sinker or slider that he's giving up home runs. Uh, so oh, that uh, might be your, your right-handed home runs there, the sinker and the slider. The slider has uh, been like his best pitch. This, he doesn't throw it much. It, it's, it's his fourth volume wise, but he has, he actually generates a ton of whiffs on that thing. So um, uh, if I had to, if I had to bank on it, I would bank on that sinker being the problem, but could be wrong. So it generates the most whiffs and he doesn't use it that much, huh? Yeah. Hmm. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I did he use it more in the past? I feel uh, like he threw the slider a lot more before he became like cutter dominant, right? So that might be an issue where they're too similar. I have his, no idea. It's his fifth most used pitch this year. Jeez, it was uh, fourth last year, and it was fourth the year before. So uh, hmm. it's moved down a little bit. He's thrown 108 of them, and he's that's only 20 behind the sinker, which is the next. Um, at least frequent pitch. So it's not like he never uses it, but he should, I'm pretty sure he should use it more. Um, he, his, uh, 
like all of the numbers on it are good. <laughs> uh, batting average is only 206 on it. Whiff percentage is 36.7, which is not the highest. The curveball's higher, but you can't be whipping out curveballs every single time you go out there. So uh, it's the second highest whiff pitch. It's good on putaways. Uh, nobody does any damage against it. And uh, let's see, he's given up two home runs on it. So it's not, in, you know, invincible, but um, he's given up two home runs on lots of his other pitches too. So mm-hmm. it doesn't stand out. <laughs> Yeah, I'm looking at his usage right here on Brooks, and the slider just kind of always seems to be kind of around 10%. Um, it sometimes dips down to like 6% in, in given months, and then other times it's up around 15%, but it never really leaves that range. And, man, that's just weird. Yeah, right. I, you would think if it's if it's so effective, then he would use it more, but... Uh, these things are complicated, and especially like it's. I'm glad you pointed out that he has this difference between his repertoire against lefties and righties, because that's a lot more common, I think, than people realize, especially for starters. Relievers kind of throw what they throw for the most part, um, but for starters, a lot of them have very different mixes. And yeah, classic. It's a classic thing. Think of the St. Louis Cardinals under Dave Duncan. They were all sinker slider guys, and that meant that right-handed power hitters had trouble against their right-handed sinker slider guys. Remember all those games where you would watch the Brewers flail against against those sinker slider guys, Um, but that doesn't work nearly as well against uh, opposite-handed power, so... um, And so he doesn't throw it against them. He relies more purely on that cutter. So, man, this is this is a weird one. He probably somebody probably needs to tell him to throw the slider more. But (laughs) who knows? Those guys are often afraid of throwing the slider more, uh, especially like starters, because it can there's there's a feeling, at least, that it leads to elbow injuries, right? That throwing a lot of sliders leads to elbow injuries. So um, it is something that throw, puts a lot of torque on the elbow. So who knows? I, I don't know exactly why it is that way. But, yeah, that's it is definitely strange. Next question this week comes from Andrew S. asking, so would it be a good idea or a bad idea to try to move birds at the deadline? I feel like every outing he keeps tanking his value more and more. Uh, So ERAs are on four right now, but the whip is still really good. Um, All the stat stat cast metrics, you know, in the red, good stuff. But Paul, I guess, are you inching towards just uh, cutting bait and trading him in July now? I think with Burns, it, it it's kind of beyond performance at this point. It really is just what can you get for him more than anything else. Like uh, you can keep him and you can drive him one more season, um, but you're in the window now where if you get a good offer for Burns, then you do it because he's not going to be on the team long term. Uh, and yeah, you get yelled at if you do it during a pennant race, but like at some point there there's a good chance they'll be they'll have a pennant race going on and they'll have to trade him or lose him for nothing. So um, it's it's time to start making those decisions. It's just a matter of what you can actually leverage out of some other team. Yeah, this is really going to come down to what are other teams thinking of him? What do they think they can do with him? Do they think that he is bound to improve off of what he's been or are they going to value him um, more like what he's been? And if they value more like what he's been, then you're not looking at nearly the return 
that people think. And frankly, you, people are not going to get the return that they think. Somebody was just telling me on Twitter right before we started that they've seen people talking about how the Brewers are going to get three top 25 prospects for uh, for Corbin Burns. And I would just like to disabuse anybody of any notion like that. That's not how the game works Those anymore. Those trades don't happen anymore. Yeah, No, no. That, this just doesn't. It, that, that's not how this works. That is not, not, not how this works anymore. And if teams are giving you a bunch of top prospects for him, then you better start looking and saying, so what uh, do they have in common with Lewis Brinson and Monty Harrison? (laughs) Because oftentimes when teams do give up top prospects these days, it's because they've decided something about this guy is not going to change and they're not going to be able to turn into a productive big leaguer or they're going to end up well below what everybody thinks their ceiling is, right? That is the fear when you, you do get top prospects these days is that the team that's trading them, unless they're dumb, has probably decided that they're not going to be able to max the ceiling on the guy. So, yeah, this one you have to be. Uh, yeah, like Paul said, this is just about like what you can get for him. And I, I think also in this case, it's going to be about where the team is. If the team is in first or very close to first in the division, I don't see how you do it. Um, but I was asked by uh, our very own Steve Garshinsky during the game about this because I made a crack about it. And he's like, so does that mean you want to trade Corbin Burns now? And I said, well, definitely before his next Arby hearing. I would prefer that the next time he goes into arbitration would be against somebody, not the Brewers. That seems like a good idea. Um, let somebody else deal with that. So... I think that this is a question of do you deal him now or do you deal him, you know, in December? I don't think this is a question of do you keep him to next deadline or all the way through next year? I think that you're you're either trading him now or at the deadline, I should say, during the season or you're trading him this winter. I don't think you're going past that point. I would be and I would be really surprised if they did. Right. Uh, Another Corbin Burns trade question here coming from Price Trozen asking, the Rays say they will be aggressive in acquiring starting pitching at the deadline. What would it take from them for the Brewers to send Burns to the trop? Um, And Ryan, I don't know about you, but trading with the Rays is always a scary proposition to me because like you said, they tend to know their guys better than most, right? Yeah, no, there's a, a very big amount of truth in that, that like um, they're not necessarily a team you want to deal with that way, though. I think that there's there's also a comfort. I think that they were able to do this Willie Adamas deal, which worked out quite well for both sides. Um, sure. And they were able to do that really early because both teams sort of spoke the same language and understood value to be kind of the same thing. And so you could have a, a, a thing where you said, OK, look. We know how much these guys are worth. You know how much this guy's worth. Let's just, you know, get on with the bullshit here and just do the deal. So you can have advantages in situations like that where if both teams are sort of on the same wavelength, uh, they can just sort of agree on what the the thing is. But um, I would say do not under any circumstances think you're getting Junior Caminero. That's the guy that like don't don't even think Caminero just cross that off the list right away. You're going after guys below Caminero, um, and it could be Carson Williams. I think I think you could look at somebody like that. I saw um, Allspurge. I think 
I would have to go back and look in my mentions, but was talking about uh, a trade and Manzardo was one of the guys he mentioned. And Manzardo is a good hitting prospect at first base. I think something that the Brewers could potentially use and and build around as far as a, a power hitting first baseman, though, as he did point out, uh, Manzardo has not had the greatest run at AAA this year. This is not as terrible as, eh, yeah, 245, 353, 455. That's fine. That's, as a 22-year-old first baseman in uh, Durham, that's, yeah, that's fine. It's not lighting the world on fire, but it's also certainly not anything to get like worried about or anything. So um, somebody like that could potentially headline a deal. I think the question when you start talking about a, a, a trade like this is more what are you going to shoot for are you going to shoot for a package that is headlined by like one potential star and then some filler stuff or are you going to look at like more of what the brewers have traditionally done which is we're looking at like three to four guys that we like to varying degrees and we're going to try to um out bulk you in return in, in a trade like this so this doesn't necessarily apply to the race could apply to anybody but I don't know. I it's this is tough because my gut instinct, I think a lot of people's gut instinct, and it's not wrong, is to say, well, if you're dealing a star, you want to get a potential star back for him. Right. You don't want to give up Corbin Burns, who has all the star power to potentially just get back like a bunch of filler guys and a bunch of pieces. But I don't know how realistic it is to actually get back a star from anybody at this point like teams tend to hold on to their potential stars very jealously now so right. that does tend to lead you that other direction well if we can't get that then let's go ahead and try to do a mixed bag maybe you try to grab one prospect really young and before they've broken out and see if you can do that the rays have had a ton of success actually the rays aren't a great this is the dirty secret the rays are not a great draft and development team what they do is they scout the uh, low minors really well and they make trades for guys that's why they got junior camonero yeah they they go out and they trade for guys before they break out as professionals sometimes it's like as a 16 17 year old they make those trades and that has been more the secret to their success and i think that if you're going to do that um, it definitely, the howls on trades like that are really loud. I immediately think back when they traded for some no-name kid that nobody had ever heard of, Willie Adamas, was the main piece they got back for David Price when they traded him with the Tigers in, I think, 2014. And people howled about it. And it turned out Willie Adamas was a pretty good player. So yep. It's one of those All things. Seven Rays fans were super pissed about that. <laughs> well, it was it was it was more like uh, the baseball uh, sphere in general was like, wow, that's a really light return for David Price, right? Like people thought, oh, they yeah. probably should have gotten more for him than that. Since baseball is going to put a salary cap on front offices sometime in the future, here <laughs> as they've been God, proposing, yeah, I think what you actually ask back for is like their top seven analyti uh, analytics people. Because... <laughs> They, have, they employ four times as many as the next highest analytics employing team, and you should get them before they get cut and they can become free agents and go anywhere. Start to stock up there. <laughs> Boom. Good move. Also, uh, Tristan Peters is the raised 20th ranked prospect on MLB Pipeline. The Brewers could get him back, you know, <laughs> after the uh, failed Trevor Rosenthal trade, and people were hand-wringing over losing Tristan Peters, of all people. So... 
And think of how funny it is because we didn't trade him to the Rays. We traded him to the Giants. And the Giants must have traded him to the Rays. So the Giants is- traded it, it was a very Rays trade where they were uh I believe trading a rule five eligible guy. So it is one of the Rays roster crunch trades mm. for sure. Yep. Um, so just a couple other names, because he, he did ask about names from the race here. So I, I said no Camonero. You're probably going to have a hard time getting them to pry away Carson Williams and Curtis Mead at the top end, especially Mead. Mead has some serious helium right now. Um, but yeah, I, I know that uh, the suggestion Basabe was mentioned. Um, Manzardo was obviously mentioned, like some guys like that potentially. Um Xavier Isaac is an interesting one. He's not hitting super well, but man, he uh, he looks like he could be a, a, a stud first baseman as well. Um, he's just 19 and is in his first full pro ball year. So another guy to if on the off chance something would happen this way, um, another guy could potentially be in a deal. For sure. Um, all right. On the other side of trade deadline talk, Devin Bearwolf asking about what the Brewers uh, could do aside from Corbin Burns. So he's asking here, assuming everything we've heard is true, that the Brewers won't do a major sell-off with all their major players, do you think they'll do smaller trades involving, say, Wade Miley or Julio Tehran? Uh, Paul, uh, should they maximize value on those guys if they're thinking they should trade some guys? This one's tough for a completely opposite reason of what we just talked about, which is that um, both are uh, both have been great. Wade Miley's been great. Julio Teheran has been out, just incredibly great. Um, but even though they've been great, I still don't think they're worth Jack. Um, that might be overstating it a little bit. Could be wrong. Julio Teheran in particular. But like, if you can get something for them, yeah, you probably should, especially on Teheran because that's going to crash at some point. Um, but I just don't think that there's going to be a big market for him. Uh, if there was a big market for him, he would be on a different team. So um, they'll do little moves. Um, but a lot of times those guys who they get, like the spaghetti that that turns out to be good for a little bit, doesn't usually bring back a ton um, every once in a while. But um, like if you're going to move guys like that are um, – sort of the minor deal like if tyrone taylor got traded that wouldn't surprise me they have tons of outfield depth he is not young anymore like he's he can be a ready platoon bat in a good spot they might do something like that you know and they'll i'm sure they'll trade for minor relievers like they always do um but like I, those those start like those guys have been great i just don't think other teams are going to see through that nobody's given a lot for wade miley it's just it's not going to happen at this point yeah, and if you do trade somebody like that and it does end up being a return, you're not going to realize it for like a year or two probably. Like yeah. if it if the guy does break out and you can get weird breakouts. I mean, never forget the Adam Lind situation. Like that is the one to always go back to. The Brewers traded Adam Lind who is a very meh sort of first baseman for them for one year and in that return, like the third best pitcher in the deal was Freddie Peralta. So at least at the time of the trade. So at least is in terms of notoriety. So you have to make when you're going to do things like this, if you do decide that you're going to do a, a rebuild, not necessarily a rebuild in this case, it'd be more like a quick replug, rego, like whatever, something, some sort of a reshaping of the roster. 
You we already to... did with, this with Packers stuff. We don't need to like relitigate yeah. what's <laughs> that's true. versus that, that's true. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, but if you're going to do it, you want to do it in mass because you give yourself more chances to hit on that sort of a return the more you do this. So if you're going to deal, like if you deal Wade Miley, you definitely deal Julio and you deal, um, well, who else? Like Brian Anderson and you deal. I don't know, yep. uh, whoever's kind of good who doesn't have another year left. And maybe yeah. some of the guys who do have more than one year left, right? It's This is a thing where if you're going to pull the plug, you pull the plug. You don't, like, half measure this. And I say that, and they probably end up half measuring it. So I agree with that. But also, like, trading Wade Miley and Julio Tarrant is not pulling the plug in any stretch of, you know, that it's... <laughs> Uh, those those are guys who have worked out for a bit. That's what they are. But it's also not. I mean, unless they've gone bad. But in that case, if they're if they've gone bad, then like who's going to give anything for them anyway? So like, right? It's like if you're doing that, you're deciding, hey, we're not trying to win this year. And if you are deciding that you like winning this year has become like a very low priority <laughs> for you, if you do that, then you need to do other things as well. Like you don't it's almost like if you're going to trade because I said just a second, if you're going to trade Julio, then you need to trade Miley. Right. It's almost like I I don't agree with that because I think it's more like if some team comes to you and gives you like a middling prospect for either of them, like you just you say yes before they can get another word out. And it's not related to the other one Hmm. at all. (laughs) Uh, If you get good, can get good deals for both of them. Yeah, you do that. But like you shouldn't be driven by success on a trade for one bite like to deal the other it's just a matter of you need somebody that you need to be able to capitalize on these very very niche not real performances here and you need somebody to do that but you shouldn't base the organizational philosophy on rebuild over happening to get something for wade miley that's worth something no that actually that makes a lot of sense you're right you it i'm probably thinking about this a little bit wrong i just it's more like if you are, if you've decided that you're no longer interested in having those guys sort of hold down the back end of your rotation, you're probably not really trying to compete this year anymore, right? So if that's the case, then like you really should be actively looking to move Burns. Maybe you don't do it because the the trade offers, right? Maybe maybe you don't move both Julio and Miley because the trade offers aren't what you think they should be. Maybe you you hold out and you say, look, I'm going to hold out for a really big return here no matter what. Like I'm going to I'm gonna shoot for a high end return on these things. I could see that like, a case for that. Well, I'm I'm also I'm not really sure you can tank. Like I don't and I don't mean like that it's a bad idea. I mean that it's like not possible to tank. <laughs> it's you've already won a fair number of games. This division is absolute garbage. And like, how could you do it? <laughs> There's no way to guarantee being bad, even with, like, the most massive sell-off ever. Like, you'll still have a couple of the young guys around, then they'll still win a couple games. So uh, it's. I also think you can't really do that. Like, you can't plan on it because you might fail. No, what you would do is you would start giving a lot of, you know, obviously you, you would start really shading playing time towards younger players. You know, Bryce Terang would be on the first train back up, well, playing back up 
running yeah around. he would but does that even make you worse <laughs> no, no no i'm just no it, it might actually make you better i'm yes, right it might. and that's and that's the thing here that it really you're 100 percent right about this is that like the guys that would be replacing some of these guys aren't necessarily worse than them. no they're not at all like honestly because like if you traded wade miley right now who would go into the rotation adrian hauser well can adrian hauser give you uh over 10 starts what wade miley could give you easily like a, a, either one of those guys i like wade more than i like adrian but the difference is not astronomical by any stretch so yeah this is these are the sorts of conversations we're going to be having for the next six weeks so i hope you're you're ready for these because we're going to be doing this again i have a feeling Unless, you know, they just start reeling off tons and tons of wins and then we can stop talking about it. That would be beautiful. All right. Well, speaking of reeling off tons and tons of wins, LaCroix Suitcase is asking, uh, are the Reds for real? I watched a a bit of the Brave series that they had uh, this past weekend, and that was a really fun, close series. I, I don't know, Paul. They might be sticking around for the long haul here. They're NL Central for real. For Absolutely. <laughs> That For they sure. are their offense is really good. Their bullpen is really good. Their starting pitcher is just a dumpster fire. Um, but everybody's got weaknesses, and they're just a much better and more fun team um, post Ellie Dela Cruz than they were before. Who is you know playing out of his mind? Well, uh, they already had a pretty good offense before that. So now they're like I would say an upper echelon offensive team. Yeah, let's see, one, two, three, four, five. Now they have six regulars with an OPS. Uh, Plus over a hundred, well over a hundred. Um, that's that's a good offense. Their their bullpen, uh, almost all of their ERAs are three and a half or less, and their starting pitching is awful. It is it is atrocious. They have a weakness, um, but uh, I'd say top to bottom, they're probably the best team in the Central. And and to the extent you can make an argument against them, it's really the Cubs more than anybody else who lead the who lead the division in um, run differential. So. Yeah, they're they're for real in the sense that anybody's for real in this crappy godforsaken division. Yeah, the NL Central for real is a good point to make here. Uh, I'll give you the numbers real quick. Uh, or sorry, uh, Fangraphs coming into today had the Brewers at eighty two point six wins and had the Reds at seventy nine, so they're gaining there. Pakota still has a pretty big split. Uh, Pakota has the Brewers at eighty five point four and has the Reds at seventy seven point five, so eight wins behind in the case of Pakota, but three behind in Fangraphs. And Fangraphs is always more uh, skeptical of the Brewers than Pakota is. So take that for what it's worth. Um, I noticed something interesting about the Reds' offense today when I was looking up the information. They are fourth in walks and fourth in on-base percentage. And that is why, even though they are hitting for considerably less power than the Brewers, home run wise, uh, home runs wise, they are lower than the Brewers by, it was like 12 or 15 home runs. Um, they're scoring considerably, considerably more because they're getting on base a lot and they're also running quite a bit, but I think it's, it's more just like the get the fact that they're getting on base a ton is really helping them. So this is an interesting team from that perspective, because it goes back to like that first sabermetric principle that we learned, which is like on base is everything like or on base is the most important of the rate stats, right? Because it tells how often you're making outs yep. and it it just you can't score unless you put a guy on base. So you have to get on base first. You know, sometimes it's a home run, sometimes it's a walk, whatever, but they have to be on base to be able to score. And so that is the kind of the single most important stat. Yeah. And we also they're good at we it. didn't mention yeah, we didn't we didn't mention it we should, but they're they're also getting the, the Vado return return tour. 
And we don't know if it'll work out, but so far it's worked out. He's been really, really, really good in small sample size so far, which also allows me to um, to recommend, uh, and I can't recommend it that well, but go Google Joey Votto, Zach Granke, and then read the article that pops up on top, <laughs> which is which is just fantastic. Because that was amazing. It was amazing. amazing. It's about how um, since Joey Votto is basically the best pitch identifier in not just like baseball over the last couple of decades, but like. Uh, one of the top in the history of baseball. Like he, he, you know, he has the insane records about like barely ever swinging at stuff outside the zone of like never popping the ball up ever, ever, ever. Um, and Zach Renke realized this and so decided to get Joey Votto out that he would throw him nothing but hangers because Votto is so good at reading spin that he would see a hanging curveball and think it's going to go out of the zone. Whereas Granky would just like leave the 78 mile an hour meatball up in the zone and it would be a strike and he wouldn't swing at it. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's great. Go read it. It worked. A, it was yeah. awesome. It's a, it's a fantastic piece. It is. Peak Zach Greinke's story. Well, and Joey Votto's story, right? It's like a yeah. perfect combination of two yep. of the true like oddball baseball <laughs> minds of our era, of any era really. And like very, very unique perspectives on the game and deeply thoughtful but also deeply weird sort of perspectives meshing together in this like perfect uh, this perfect <laughs> this perfect <laughs> blend of of uh of weirdness it's it's delightful i also highly recommend that all right uh moving on we've got pj wessels asking what is happening that the one team everybody was worried about is tanking this mets team is also bad and the reds are leading the division can we blame this on the brewers somehow uh maybe i don't know paul um it's hard to blame it too much on the brewers (laughs) they don't have that wide of an effect on things the mets are funny i have to admit i uh, i thought they'd be better yeah you can't spend your way completely to victory but um you you can you can get a good chunk of the way there but no i don't really think i mean if you want to say they didn't get stern so that's why this happened i don't think so i think they would have went and spent new owner money on a bunch of stars no matter what happened there so no i don't really think so and uh, can't do it on the reds the reds are just you know they're not really they're not really fair they have bad owners who insult the fan base but you know they've gotten a couple good stars and their development seems to be working pretty well so yeah not everything's about you it's important to know that (laughs) (laughs) yep uh we'll just keep going here yeah, uh, Made Wiley asking, uh, does Joey Weimer need to change his swing to become a plus hitter? When things are going well, he looks like a star, but when he struggles, the swing looks hopeless. Uh, Ryan, it's always been an unusual swing. What do you think? Yeah, it has always been an unusual swing, and that's why the comps to Hunter Pence have always been there, because you watch him, and it was like like this very weird max effort sort of thing, but he squared up a lot of baseballs with it, and so... Um, now, I'm not saying Joey Weimer is as good as Hunter Pence was, because Hunter Pence is one of those Hall of Very Good guys. Like, go back and look at his career. He was quite good. Um, but, you know, I, I think that I always go back to on this that um, you have to sort of isolate how the bat travels through the strike zone. And uh, this is a Keith Law kind of truism that he's talked about for years, which is, he doesn't care what happens before a bat gets into the the um into the swing plane like into the passing through the the strike zone and doesn't care what happens after it what matters is that you can get the bat to the right place on time that you can time up fastballs and you can time up breaking stuff and changes 
and you can so you can get the bat to the right place at the right time and that's all that really matters the the extra stuff like the looks of it um can be deceptive and it can lead you down the wrong path where you sort of eliminate a guy by because the swing just looks weird like that doesn't look like it's going to (laughs) play and you really have to focus more on just like okay is the bat traveling through the the strike zone um on a good plane is it able to generate consistent hard contact is it able to you know do the things that a good uh, baseball swing needs to do and i think that has become easier for us to do now that we have like stat casts to look at i think that that is something we can do and i think that at this point you could say that Weimer's going to have to make adjustments. There's going to be adjustments because the league is adjusting to him and he's adjusting back to the league. And there's things that are going to need to change. Does he need to change the swing fundamentally? Maybe, but I sort of doubt it. I think I don't think so. Yeah, I, I really just success. Don't. Yeah, uh, I, I think you can really see this just very simply. Just look at how he hits breaking balls versus fastballs. Um, that swing is perfectly cromulent against fastballs. He annihilates fastballs. He, he does not miss fastballs. He, he hits them very hard and very far and consistently. Um, and he, when it uh, when this season started, he he basically didn't make contact with like the first forty breaking balls he saw. Um, he's he has improved since then, but it's still a weakness for him. But like it's a weakness a lot of hitters have, and it's not really a swing plane weakness. It, it's more of a recognition when you miss breaking balls because you're fooled. It's not because your swing was bad. And he still gets fooled on them too often. And when he has those ugly swings, it's usually because he's he's got a fastball swing coming at a 70-mile-an-hour breaking ball that's dropping out of the zone. Those look bad. Those are bad tape. Um, so, yeah, it's, it, I think his swing's fine. It, it is a violent swing. He gets everything out of it when he makes contact. It, he just needs a little like Corey Hart lesson, like and you got to let those go and wait for that fastball to come to you, and you'll be fine. And that's really what it—that's what Weimer's all about. Yeah, and he has shown a reasonable amount of plate discipline in his time in the majors too. Like he has taken a, his share of walks, maybe more even than I was expecting him to have, have taken to date. So he clearly has some ability there. Like this is not a completely foreign concept to him. He just needs to hone it and get better at it. And I 100% agree that yeah, he can he can catch up to the fastball. That's the number one thing. He's just going to have to learn and adjust like one, as you're saying, to be able to lay off those breaking pitches, but two, to find times to like look for them and go hunting them and then try to do something with them in that case, too. Like if you can time that up and go, okay, I really feel like this is going to be a breaking ball. If I get it in the right spot, I'm going to do damage on it. That's another skill that you can sort of pick up as you go that guys guys get better at that sort of thing as they get older as they see more and more and more of them. They pick that up. Hopefully it'll happen for him, but you never know. Next question this week comes from Stephen Kurtz asking, should they move Jesse Winker down in the batting order? Maybe 10th or 11th, Paul? (laughs) Uh, I mean, yes, fine. He should bat last, but batting order doesn't matter and if you're gonna get anything out of the guy you gotta have him hit and maybe you don't we're, <laughs> we're getting in the post neck era enough that we're you know it's not super encouraging but yeah winker has had he's been bad we all know he's been bad but if we want to if you want to see what he is post you know il stint this is the time and if, if he doesn't improve uh he will be moved to the 11th spot in the lineup that will happen that he will be gone that's <laughs> that writing's on the wall for him a little bit 
100% agree. He wasn't in the lineup today, was he? And that I was think so. a right-handed batter. Yep. So pretty sure not. That's interesting, at least noteworthy. Uh, don't want to read too much into any one lineup day decision because it could be a lot of different things. He might just not have been feeling well or something. But yeah, it's a noteworthy. And yeah, this is looking like a uh, a swing and a miss from a uh, from an acquisition standpoint. Though, did you well, see both sides? Colton Wong has been terrible too. Though he hit a home run this week also. So they yeah. both hit their first after home Jesse, run. <laughs> after Jesse did. Yeah. 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 That was amazing. Yeah. All right. Uh Jay Google asking, Ryan, when is self like coming? I know we all had another momentary oh. bit of panic panic this week. Oh my God. So yeah, that was when I started reading that, because it was uh I was at a concert on Wednesday night and I saw that uh the people discussing it uh early the next morning and <laughs> yep. i was like a little bleary-eyed and a little bit like oh you've got to be kidding me um and then you hear the news later in the day that nope it was fine he's just fine uh though they did sit him out he didn't play on thursday friday or saturday but he was back in the lineup on sunday so and he didn't strike out any he didn't get any hits but he didn't strike out assuming everything is good to go and he's actually fine there wasn't some undetected damage or whatever in his knee after doing that then i think it could be any time it really <laughs> we're we're very close um blake perkins escapades on the base path today goodness I mean, gracious granted dude was on base twice today which i wouldn't have had that on my bingo card but like <laughs> i mean he then to bland his way off the bases so you can't be doing that if you're Blake Perkins. No, you really you don't can't. don't have that much. Yeah. And you could just as easily be Rymel Tapia, who really was uh, aggravating me this week with those almost home runs, especially the almost grand slam. You're like, oh, that, that looks like it's going. Oh, oh, oh. Uh, warning track power, not. Yep. Spring, spring training Willie Mays Hayes. That's what you are. Yeah. So uh, either one of those guys could go at any moment and it wouldn't make me or I think really anybody except them and their immediate family and loved ones um, sad. So, uh, yeah, it, it's kind of any time now. I, it probably is. They're going to want to see him be healthy for a bit, I would assume. Um, but given what he was doing before that, uh, he was stinging the ball, spraying it all over the place, hit for some power showed some speed on the base paths, um, was getting on base, taking walks. Like it, it all seemed to have sort of clicked back into place the way it had in spring training for him. So fingers crossed. We shall see him soon. Let's wrap things up this week with a good old rules question. We love these. Uh, <laughs> asking when is Vic Caratini going to be called for a swinging strike when he takes an inside pitch? Please tell me I'm not the only one bothered by slash fascinated with his takes. Uh, Ryan, you wanted to use this platform to rant about the league's rules. Go for it. <laughs> yes, I do. Uh, anybody who follows me on Twitter knows that uh, I get very, very upset about the check swing, uh, uh, swing, no swing rule because there isn't a defined rule. There, People are like, wait, it isn't just like the front of the plate. It's not nope, breaking. Nope. It's not the breaking of the wrist. Breaking of the wrists. No, no, no. no. 
It's just uh, the the rule is stupid. Actually, can somebody look it up while I rant here for a second so we can get the like the actual <laughs> rule in place of what a swing is and isn't because it's stupid. Um, and James and I were actually talking before you jumped on, Paul, and we're like, you know, this would be an excellent thing that Hawkeye could take care of. Just define it as the front of the damn plate. If your bat head gets in front of the plate or it breaks the plane, let's use the, the football rule here. If it breaks the front Hell plane... Yeah. Of the the bay of the home plate, if it breaks the front plane, then it is a swing, and if it does not, it is not a swing. And you can go to Hawkeye, and this can be implemented right when they bring up the uh, the uh, uh, the calls for uh, ball strike as well. They can have another little simulator there, and you can do this. I'm sure, I'm a hundred percent sure you can do this with the the radar detection system that is Hawkeye. Whatever, however that works, I'm sure you can do it that way. Do it, be done with it, and I never have to rant about this again because in baseball, much like the the question of the ball where it was like, well, we never really defined what the baseball should be, like the rules governing what the baseball should be are very, very uh, open to interpretation and sort of unspecific. And it feels like it's the most important piece of equipment. Like the most fundamental act of baseball is swinging the damn bat. And you should probably define what a swing is and isn't because it's kind of important. So like, <laughs> let's get on that MLB and define what a damn swing is and then like figure out a way to enforce it so that we, we can all stop just looking at it going, well, I've seen it called one way and I've seen it called the other way. And then we just throw up our hands and shrug and go, I don't know, whatever. Because it's getting a little old. It's getting a little tiresome. And I'm frankly sick of it. So There is no rule. And I've tried to find the rule. There's just yeah. explanations of the rule, but not the rule itself. So, right. Oh, my God. See, this is, this is right. So we need a rule. There needs to be yeah. a rule. There should be a rule. There should be a rule. And it needs to be defined and then use Hawkeye to, to handle it. And what was the actual question? Oh, Vic Caratini. <laughs> Vic Caratini. He's going to get called on one of these. It's a miracle he hasn't already. It's great. Well, you should keep doing it. Like, what are you? You're talking about this thing that he does where he throws like his whole shoulder into it. Uh, maybe I'm not quite sure. I I feel like I've seen a couple of check swings. I of feel like that he were like, almost yeah. hits it. Like it's he almost hits the ball with the the thin part of the bat slash the knob on almost every inside pitch. Um, and it's not even really an egregious check swing. It's just more that like. He gets the the bat in a position where the ball could very easily hit it every single time. Okay, I'm um, yeah, I'm I have a mental picture of it now. Okay, yeah, yeah, that's that's weird. It, it, it is weird. I, I'm a fan of it. So <laughs> stupid. The Wikipedia entry doesn't even have a link to the rule. No, it doesn't. It's annoying. <laughs> like God, I can just go to the sites there. Yeah. No, no, you can't. No. I mean, one of these times it is actually just going to hit the bat and then like go dribbling off and. You're gonna be like, oh, so that was apparently a strike, even it, though he didn't. It's the same it. rule as what a catch is. That's what it is. I was gonna say MLB will nail this down right after the NFL, NFL gets, gets on what the, catch. the yeah. catch is. Yeah, exactly. All right, that'll do it for questions this week, everybody. Thank you so much. A reminder for all: sign up to become a patron at Patreon.com/slash MKE Tailgate. Two bucks a month gets you that question priority. Makes sure your question gets answered on the next week's episode. Even if you're not a patron, you can support us another way. You can go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever else you listen to us. Give us a five star review there. And while you're there, please be sure to hit the subscribe button or the follow button. Make sure you never miss an episode. Uh, 
that'll do it for this week. Lots of questions ran a little bit long, but, uh, you know, lots to talk about when you're incons- uh, consistently inconsistent. I can't even get that straight. Uh, um, so hopefully the next week uh, goes a little bit more smoothly. Uh, going to New York to play the Mets, who are a mess right now. So we'll see how that works out for the Brewers. We'll be back next week to talk about that and anything else that happens here on Milwaukee's Tailgate. Have a good week, everyone.